and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Roos, founder and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. On today's podcast, we'll be discussing how people can take back control of their lives at a time of massive change and digital disruption. Today, I'm joined by one of the most recognizable digital anthropologists and global keynote speakers, Brian Solis. I've known Brian for several years, having read many of his books and sharing the stage with him at the 2018 Financial Brand Forum in Las Vegas. Brian has written seven best-selling books, including X, The Experience When Business Meets Design, What's the Future of Business, and The End of Business as Usual. Brian's latest book, LifeScale, How to Live a More Creative, Productive, and Happy Life, is a bit of a detour from his previous books, but no less important at a time when survival may be determined by a person's ability to adjust to the challenges of change. In his book, Brian combines scientific findings and powerful tools that can help any person dissect where they are today, what could be holding them back from success and happiness, and how to be better positioned for long-term satisfaction. So welcome, Brian, to Banking Transformed. To get us started, and for those of the audience that don't know you as well as I do, can you tell our audience a little bit about your background and also what motivated you to write your newest book, LifeScale? Well, thank you. It's always a pleasure to hang out with you. Although I will say that I would rather like the last time where we did so over <laughs> champagne. <laughs> yeah, not, that would be nice. Yes. So we'll have to we'll have to get that going. And for everybody else, it's nice to meet you. My name is Brian Solis. I am a long-term, long-time digital analyst, digital anthropologist, uh, author, and, and also speaker. I have uh, recently gone independent to work on some very specific market needs, such as solving for innovation, digital transformation, and a variety of scenarios, such as customer experience, employee experience, risk-averse cultures, looking at customers and how they're evolving so that we could reverse engineer strategies that deliver more relevant products or also more relevant engagement strategies throughout the customer journey. So I spent a lot of time studying how the market is evolving, how technology is changing and affecting customer expectations or employee expectations, and then reverse engineering what that means so that executives can take steps forward. I also write a lot of research reports. I write books that humanize all of these trends so that people can see it for what it is, not for what how they see themselves in that change, which is usually one of the biggest hurdles to all of this change. And that's my approach, uh, whereas a lot of others are really, really, really good at uh, studying technology, studying who the technology players are. I study sort of the humanity and the common threads to basically help people on a faster track make decisions that are going to accelerate their business. Well, it's interesting. On the surface, and this is interesting, because I, as you know, I, as soon as you publish a book, I'm on Amazon getting the first one I can. And, you know, it was interesting because when I looked at it, I said, well, this is a completely different direction. And then I got into the book, and I realized that all of your previous books really, as you said, dealt with the digital aspect, dealt with how to deal with customer experience and all that. But the part that's missing in some cases is the whole aspect of how does the employee, how does the person involved in the process, the person who's working for the organization, look at how they can transform themselves to be able to implement 
the things you brought in the other books. So as I mentioned to you, getting into the book, I realized this book is really just another step in the process of how you can become a better digital organization is you got to start with yourself. That is profound. And it means a lot that you had that reaction to it. It is a radical departure for me. It's my eighth book, but it's my first book that you could look at it through a personal lens. And it wasn't planned. And I was actually trying to write another book. So the truth is that we live in a time where digital distractions are incredible. And they are incredible for a lot of reasons that we don't talk about or that we don't know that we need to know about those things. So for example, the more we use our smartphones or our mobile devices, the more we use social apps, the more we play a lot of these current forms of games, the more that they actually rewire our brains and bodies. And they're designed to do that because the one thing that they all need is your attention. And attention is a super precious commodity these days. So there's science that a lot of designers use. And they, look, they have used, but the science is very, very, very sophisticated today that falls under an umbrella of what's called persuasive design. It's actually taught at Stanford. But what it's doing is hooking you and then keeping you. And it does so, uh, I believe that their intent wasn't to do what ended up happening, but what ends up happening is that it starts to mimic a drug. It becomes something you need and something you want to keep feeding. And that has the ultimate psychological, biological, uh, and emotional effects that I don't think anybody planned for. And so what happens is as a digitally distracted human being, we're thinking differently, we're working differently, we're operating at a much faster and higher level and not connecting with the depth and creativity that we used to. Boredom is now something we've cured, even though that the cure is actually not the best thing for us. You know, So the book itself was my journey to, I couldn't write my next book because I was completely distracted. I was operating with you know, multitasking, moving from this to that, you know, responding to this email, responding to that text, responding to that update, sharing my life, my moment, et cetera. And the more you do that, the more you wire yourself to keep doing that and the more your body needs you to keep doing that. And so over time, you know, in my case, I've been, I, you know, I was, I was, I had the first iPhone before that I had the Palm and the Trio. And so I was always connected, but over time you change. And it had been a good few years in between books and I had changed just enough that actually sitting there and writing a few hundred pages was impossible. I couldn't even get past the proposal stage. And after a whole bunch of him and Hine and blaming you know, writer's block, I did start to see patterns across my entire life in my relationships, in my friendships, in my work, and spent the next two years studying how I got there. I didn't necessarily automatically think, oh, it must be my smartphone. But having access to a lot of really smart people, a lot of friends who were, are designers that work in the space, a lot of folks who are now what you could call sort of advocates on more ethical design practices, I really started to get the inside story and then started to do the research that didn't necessarily exist, which is what are the effects of those design techniques and then how does that play out over time? I connected the dots and long story short, I went on a journey that recentered my relationship with technology, didn't abandon it, just found a better way to be purposeful with it. Um, but also be purposeful about what, who I am and who I'm trying to be, and then become it. And that's what the book is about. It's that journey for personal transformation and personal innovation. And now 
the story I want to tell with the book is, like you said, it has to start with you. But ultimately, once it starts with you, you now can't unsee what you didn't see. Uh, and what that means and why that's so important is that you can then take that empathy and apply it to customer experience. How do you reach a customer? How do you bank a customer? How do you help a customer grow their wealth management? Whatever it is that you want to put into context, if they're constantly distracted and you know that they feel these things, that they're anxious, that their self-esteem might be rivaled, that their short-term and long-term memory is being affected, uh, that they feel uh, less than because we live in a comparative economy where you're always comparing yourself to everything that you see. So you can start to think about that from a much more human level about designing better touch points, better products and services, uh, delivering messages that make people feel like they're, they're appreciated. And you can do the same for the employee experience. And so that's how I'm thinking about the book now is as a means to transform the executive and the decision makers within organizations to then take those ideas and transform the organization to be more agile, more innovative, more disruptive. Well, it's interesting because the things that we consider distractions are also learning experiences. The things that impact us, you, you talk about, you know, our iPhones, everything else. I found that during my transformation process that I had to look at everything as being what the future is going to become. And they become distractions if you want to hold your ground and not change. So what happens is in a digital world, if you try to take in everything, you take in nothing. And so your book makes it very clear that in some cases, I believe, you need to take a step backward to take a step forward, but that the process itself will prepare you more for the future of work, which is in all counts going to be very different today than it was yesterday. And in fact, they said that in 2030, 80-some percent of the jobs aren't in existence today. So you need to clear the mind. You need to embrace the change that's going to be out there as opposed to sticking your feet in the water. And so my question is, you know, at the beginning of your book, you have an illustration that I just see it as a, uh, a visualization of the old game of shoots and ladders, where the beginning endpoints are defined, but the path is far from straight and predictable. What part of the journey in your research have you found to be the most difficult for people to embrace? Wow. Well, thank you. And thank you for that observation, because that's exactly what the intention is for that. The journey after the book was written, specifically to help unlock creativity, it's actually in the in the subtitle, which is uh, Life Scale, which is the name I gave the movement, How to Live a More Creative, Productive, and Happy Life, was because creativity is actually an accelerator for transformation. And it also happens to be one of the key pillars to innovation. The thing about creativity, and we, I'll talk a bit about the journey in a second, the thing about creativity is that it's more important than ever before. And when we talk about it, you know, we tend to think about artistry. We tend to think about genius. We tend to think about creativity as not being part of us, but we are all, and we once were all creative and there's big C creativity. So you could think about it as Van Gogh or Elton John, if you will, but there's little C creativity and the little C creativity of all of the silly things we could do, like write your name uh, or a sentence with the opposite hand you normally write with sing, sing at the loudest you can learn to dance, do these things because what they do is they start to rewire your brain and your body in ways that are much more productive for you thinking creatively or uniquely, which at a time where everybody has access to the same filters, everybody has access to the same emojis, where most people can't even write a sentence anymore. These are the things that help you start to not only stand out, but also be ready 
to learn and unlearn the things that are going to help you be more competitive in the future. That, you know, in a, in a world of AI and automation, creativity is probably one of the greatest gifts we can give ourselves. So that's, that's the process of the book and the outcome is creativity, but also productivity and hopefully <laughs> happiness. But more so, it's essentially wiring you to be successful for the future. And it's an ongoing journey, right? Because it's not like we're going to stop seeing all kinds of new technologies. You, know, you mentioned about creativity and the creativity overall. That's the aspect of the human nature that will allow us to work besides machines and bring value to the equation. If all we need to do is, or all we know to do is to push buttons or to work a simple machine, the problem is we will be outplaced. And, you know, when it comes down to it, we now, and, and your book, really emphasize this, at least in my perspective, is that more than ever before, we have to re-energize and, and recalibrate our learning muscles. Those learning muscles are ones that we kind of have in full gear when we're in college. But when we leave college year after year, we don't keep those in tune. So they basically, there's atrophy, learning atrophy. And the only way you're going to be able to move forward in the future is is really through the learning process and through creativity. But again, the book, I believe, is a guide to be relevant in the future. Is that not true? I hope it is. And you're exactly right. If you ask how many people think that AI is going to take jobs, you're going to probably get everybody's hand to go sky high. If you ask them how many people think AI is going to take your job, they're going to think about it. And we tend to do that. We protect ourselves with all kinds of cognitive biases. We're not, we don't think about it that way. And if we do, we're not sure what that even means. But as of now, <laughs> machines do need partners and managers and trainers and creativity is sort of part of all of those things. Uh, the machines can do and automate what it is that we tell them to do. And I think this is something that is profound because you have two paths that we need to take as an organization. One is the path to iteration, which is using, for example, technology and in this case, AI and automation to improve what is today, right? So to scale and improve all kinds of things, efficiencies, operations, performance, reach, engagement, you know, put people in places where they can actually add to, the, for example, the value of an experience instead of just following scripts and in customer service. And then on the other path, you have innovation, which is using technology, AI, machine learning in this case, to unlock new value. And that takes creativity. That takes fresh thinking. What about or what if? That takes any kind of approach. You choose your favorite one, you know, design thinking or human-centered design. That allows you to think differently about how the technology can be implemented. Because I can tell you right now that most are on the path of iteration. They're just taking automation to do the thing, you know, improve the performance of it or just automate the performance of it, reduce costs, increase scale, which is fine. But you need both because disruption is the thing that lurks always. I always say disruption is a gift you either give to someone or it's a gift you receive at some point. And disruption is doing the new things that create new value that make the old things obsolete. And that's how I want businesses to think about the decisions they're making, that there is no one way to implement any of this. And if we simply implement all of these new things within the infrastructure that we have today, then you're only going to get iteration. This is one of the reasons why I am focusing more and more on corporate culture. And it is probably not the sexiest conversation to have, but it is the most important conversation to have because it is either the number one catalyst to change or the number one inhibitor to change. And culture has been an ethereal conversation for far too long, but if you really 
just strip out whatever biases that we have towards the word culture, what we're really talking about is how human beings work together and how human beings work together in the context of new technologies that are working alongside human beings, not just doing the bidding of human beings, right? So that is a conversation we need to start having more and more because how human beings work and how they will work and how they want to work are things that we need to start solving for. And when we're talking about the future of work, essentially it's human and machine, but the human aspect of it is governed by things that are not in the corporate operational model today. So I have a friend, his name is Jason Corman, and he's the CEO of Gaping Void. And he talks about culture as a management system, as an official ISO standard business management system. And when you look at the psychological aspects of culture, you look at the neurological aspects of it, sociological aspects of it, you can see that essentially culture is today governed by rules within the organization and hierarchy and performance standards. But that's not how human beings interact with one another. They interact with one another around norms and values and shared interests and all of the things that are not articulated or defined or reinforced in your work. So that actually brings the humanity in this era of digital disruption that's going to allow organizations to thrive in whatever it is that they're going to do, digital transformation, innovation, whatever it is, is just getting to the humanity and solving the problems that we haven't even recognized that exist. Well, when, and when we look at our political situation today and we look at Brexit, we look at, at actually everywhere in the world and the desire to keep people not like us, whatever may they, that be, out and to basically what I'm going to say want to keep change away and, and continue to be like we've always been. Part of that is that it's very hard to embrace a process of change ourselves as individuals, as companies, as, as organizations, as governments. But we can't stop change. And so, again, your book, I think, is interesting because if you look at it from the perspective of being prepared for the future, it's the only way to go. I, I, I refer back to your, I'm going to call it the table of contents, but the shoots and ladders at the beginning. The one thing I probably could argue, and I'm sure you're going to agree with this, that it looks like initially that there's a starting point and end point. There's a person who wins the game. Well, the reality is it's a circular process because as soon as you get to the top, oh, by the way, it's like that automatic shoot that goes down back down the bottom and says, oh, by the way, this is lifelong. This is forever. In that process, when you look at the process that you propose in your book, I think what's important is you can't always do it alone and you need reinforcement. How important is have a network of friends, of associates, have leadership to really reinforce the process of taking on the next learning experience? Really loving how you're reacting to the book and your reaction is very comforting and promising for me because it recognizes the hope that I had someone would take away from it. This is a book about personal transformation and innovation for you to then go be a change agent for leading the way to the future. If nothing else, it helps you manage digital distractions and live a better life. But I wanted to write a book for next generation leaders. But I didn't want to put that all over the cover and in the book itself because there's a much more human thing here that I didn't want to have an agenda behind it that we have to get to. And wherever you get to is where you get to. And to see you get here is, is, is fantastic. It is exactly a lifelong journey. The more that technology comes into our lives, the more that 
our attention is being hacked, right? Netflix's CEO, Reed Hastings, said in a shareholder call last year uh, or earlier this year that one of the company's biggest competitors was sleep and that they were winning. And there is a well-known developer in Los Angeles who has said that you know one of the ways that they're thinking about AI and machine learning is to learn new ways to hack the mind, to get more attention, and to quote-unquote juice people. And so this is going to be for the foreseeable future an ongoing battle. And that battle without taking control of how we're being rewired, if we don't recognize how we're being rewired, then we simply just live life as a function of these effects. And that plays out in things like Brexit or politics or you, you name it. And it creates sort of polarization because we are essentially surrounding ourselves with the belief systems that are molded or we're molded into us. And then algorithms you know, sort of reinforce those things. And we don't see an opportunity to change. Now, friendships and relationships, we have to think about them in the way that we think about a board. Right. I mean, a lot of times companies are struggling to innovate because their board of directors doesn't know what they don't know. They don't know that just a hyper example. But I found this in, in a lot of my research. You know, a hyper example is, you know, what are the effects of Tinder and DoorDash on a banking customer? Something we didn't even think to ask. What's the relationship between Spotify and a banking customer? Turns out they're pretty deep. And pretty incredible to learn from because you can reverse engineer a lot of the things that they that how that's reprogrammed their expectations, uh, their standards for experiences, et cetera, and services to help inspire new ideas and new products and services within. Now, your personal life, I found myself the victim of being surrounded by people who were like me and struggling with life and making decisions about life without realizing that they were doing so from a very different center of reference because that center of reference is pushed in new directions that we don't, we don't necessarily know because we're just kind of living life and everything seems normal. But when you go through the journey, the life scale journey, you actually are part of the process is you are creating an intentional center of reference. And you realize that you then have to surround yourself with people who are like-minded, who are going to push you in that direction, reinforce that behavior, create the norms that are going to guide your behaviors. And that I was surrounded by those that were actually holding me to a different center of reference. So that's like your own personal board of directors. You know, Brian, I can't believe we're, we're kind of out of time here, but I think what's important, your book is a self-help book. There's no doubt about that, but it's not necessarily a warm and fuzzy self-help book. It's a calls to action, some things that must be done. I think what's unique about it is that it does come out of the same mind, the same person that is written about digital transformation, customer experience, all these things in the past. So the reference point, I think, of the book is interesting because if you look at it from the perspective of how do I prepare for a future that I'm not going to be able to determine, how do I get clutter out of my life? How do I take in the things that are more important? How do I make it so I have more time for myself? Because at the end of the day, none of us, I doubt very few of us, We'll have the same job defined the same way five years from now. And oh, by the way, that change is going to happen faster and faster and faster. So your book, I obviously a fan, but so people can get it themselves. How do people get a hold of your book? Thank you for asking. Uh, it's available uh, wherever books are sold. More information is available at lifescaling.me. And then you can find more about me and my work if you'd like to work together at briansolis.com 
And Brian, uh, this is a side note before we sign off is that I think you probably follow me on different channels. You'll see that I've gone through a major transformation process from a health standpoint. And 10 years ago, I went through it from a business standpoint. So part of this whole process is accountability. So knowing that you're the author of LifeScale, the next time we meet, I want to make sure that you and I are both living the life that we say we're going to live and basically practicing what we preach. Because to say the least, the, the learnings of your book hold people very accountable and it's very easy to see whether or not you're doing it right or not. So thank you very much for being on the show today. Always a pleasure to just hang out with you. So thank you and thank you everybody for listening. Thanks for listening to Banking Transformed. If you enjoyed today's interview, please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and listen in every Tuesday as we interview some of the world's foremost leaders. Also, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out our amazing research we are doing on digital transformation, retail banking innovation, the digital customer experience, and financial marketing on the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Bridget Coyne, and audio engineers, Sean Rule Hoffman and Dave Douglas. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, have a great week. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.